0: If September 11th was, as many have described it, a failure of the imagination, the Iraq Saga is about um, imaginations run amok.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Why did we go to war in Iraq? I, we are long time after that war started and one of the strangest facts about politics to me is i still don't know i still don't understand what led the bush administration to choose to go to war in iraq like why does what why make that decision why of all the things you could have done of all the risks you could have taken of everything that needed to happen do you embark on that folly And then how did they turn so many people into enablers of it? I remember being a college student during this time. I was a freshman during the run-up to war. And as I was looking at it, I didn't trust the Bush administration, but I kind of trusted Colin Powell a bit. And then more than that, Tony Blair and Bill and Hillary Clinton and a bunch of these um, people who I thought had access to intelligence I've never seen. And so they must know something. But of course they didn't. And so you get this unbelievably damaging, lethal. Thousands of Americans die. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis die. America is not in any way made safer. The Middle East is destabilized. So much blood and treasure expended. For what? Robert Draper is a journalist, New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, and he covered the Bush administration intensely. He had a lot of access to Bush in the Bush years. He wrote a a book about him then. But he realized even writing a book about that administration, he didn't understand the answer to that question either. Why did we go to war in Iraq? And he's now written a new book called To Start a War. In it, what he does is he talks to more than 300 people more than 300 who were involved in the run-up to war, and he basically reconstructs the Bush administration's entire internal debate over the war, the debate between agencies and meetings and moments. And it's an extraordinary act of journalism. And it helps answer this question, just what happened here? How did this get sold? How did it get identified in the first place? Was it just the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time? And it's also just a a very, very, very good book about how bureaucracies work and about what happens when the president decides to do something and everybody reorients themselves around that goal. I think it paints some really interesting through lines between the Bush and Trump administrations, even though those teams don't like each other, which we talk about in here. As always, my email is EzraKlineShow at Vox.com. Here is Robert Draper.
0: Robert Draper, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ezra.
1: So I'm just going to start with it. Why did we go to war in Iraq?
0: Because the president of the United States believed he had no choice in the matter is the, the kind of glib answer. Um, but obviously- He had no there, choice in the matter? He believed he had no choice. He truly believed that um, that Saddam posed a threat and that we could not wait around for the next threat to materialize after after the administration, the Bush administration had frankly been caught with its pants down um, in 9-11. But, you know, obviously, and this is, I think, one of the- Theses of the book, Ezra, is that the fact that Bush believed he had no choice in a matter is testament to how narrow his dis- decision space was made to be, how, how absent it was, of a full constellation of possibilities, certainly a diplomatic solution being uppermost among those possibilities, and also just how um, his mind was gravitating towards those things that confirmed his biases. And we will go into that regarding Saddam Hussein. But it was not, it's fair to say, an open-ended search for truth and for all means necessary to avoid war.
1: I just find that that answer so wild to me because I when I heard that you'd written this book, I was ge- genuinely and, and having read it, it's fantastic. Um, excited about it because to me, one of the central mysteries of politics in my adult life has been why did we go to war in Iraq? Why why did we do something so bizarrely optional with such terrible consequences? And for you to say that Bush saw it the exact opposite way that the most Choice-oriented war, I think this country has maybe ever been involved in to him was no choice. I mean that that seems like lunacy to me. How how long how how long after the attack of 9-11 does it take for members of the Bush administration to begin talking about going to war in Iraq?
0: A few hours. Um it's uh the there's a reason why I began and for that matter ended the book with um, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz. I think a lot of people have have called Wolfowitz the architect of the Iraq war. That's erroneous, but it is certainly true that he put Iraq on the agenda when it had no business being there. And on the very evening of 9-11, late that evening, Wolfowitz, who had long agitated for the military overthrow of Saddam Hussein, tasked the Defense Intelligence Agency, not with information on um, the 9-11 hijackers, that manifest, in fact, was already available, but instead on a full report of all of Iraq's ties to terror groups. So Iraq was on his mind, and what he succeeded in doing within a matter of days was getting it on the president's mind, and it never left his mind.
1: The, the way you tell the story in the book, you sort of pick up something tantalizing that that you sort of put back down. And so I want to I want stay on it for a minute here. So Wolfowitz brings this up. And as you tell it, it doesn't really catch Bush's interest at first. And the moment it does is when Wolfowitz says or proposes this idea that you could capture the oil fields and use that to launch a regime change uh, operation from Iraq. Now, later on, there's a lot more emphasis on democracy promotion and WMDs and other things. But obviously, the less view of the war was that it was blood for oil. It was a war for oil. And at, there's like this moment in the book where it seems that oil is a big part of Bush's thinking. So what hooks Bush? Because he doesn't come into office thinking he needs to go to war in Iraq, and he doesn't initially respond positively. And so is it is it oil? Is it something else?
0: Well, yeah. So it's it's worth remo- um, just flicking a little bit of what you mentioned there, Ezra, uh, uh, that um, Bush didn't come into office seeking to depose Saddam Hussein. For a lot of people, that sounds like a dubious claim, given that Saddam had supposedly attempted to assassinate Bush's father, uh, the former President Bush, during a 1993 visit to Egypt. I say supposedly because they are never able to never able to conclusively prove that, though it did appear that the bomb in the vehicle that was seized um, seemed to be of the handiwork of the Iraq intelligence service. But despite the personal animus that the younger Bush held uh, towards Saddam, I think the evidence is pretty plain that he did not want to spend um, the first term of his presidency hugging war widows, that he had a full domestic agenda of education reform, energy reform, tax cuts uh, to implement. And everyone around him knew that, but it was a source of some bother to uh, neoconservatives like um, Paul Wolfowitz. And so Wolfowitz, after getting his tasking from the Defense Intelligence Agency the late the evening of September the 11th on Saddam's ties to terror groups, then brings up the subject four days later at Camp David on September the 15th, which is a war council that has really convened to discuss how to strike back at the terrorists who did this to us. And so there's George Tenet of the CIA showing uh, maps of Afghanistan and where they can attack um, uh, locales of terror groups. And then Wolfowitz but butts in and says actually I don't know why we're focusing on Afghanistan we should really be focusing on Iraq we should focus on on killing the or, or cutting off the head of the snake and an argument ensues and and you're right that president bush then says okay we will leave iraq for later and and tables it and that seems to be the end of it and everybody around the table believes that it's over and done with. What they failed to take into account, something that I actually foreshadowed in this first chapter relating to Wolfowitz, which was that he was quite a persistent, tenacious fellow, and that um, uh, people like his former boss in the Pentagon, uh, Dick Cheney, knew and admired this about him. And so Wolfowitz did not. Um, simply walk away from the subject. In fact, within a matter of hours, during essentially a coffee break that afternoon of of September the 15th, he sidled up to Bush and began pitching the idea to him, but said that basically an overthrow of Saddam could be achieved without a full-on military invasion, that we could instead basically use airstrikes to seal Saddam off from the southern part of Iraq, which includes the oil fields, which would not only make him the quote-unquote mayor of Baghdad, but also cut him off from his financial resources, which would then impoverish his regime and allow a small uh, military group, perhaps head of Iraqi um, refugees, uh, to then overthrow him. It's still kind of a cockamamie, cockamamie notion, but Bush was very intrigued by it. And so Bush basically said to Wolfowitz's boss, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, the next day, hey, look into creative responses to um, or creative means of, of um, dealing with Iraq. And so that's how the ball starts to get rolling. And then even though the president properly turns his attention to Afghanistan, where the Taliban had, had given refuge to al-Qaeda, by December, he has already announced his appetite for moving on to another theater in the war on terror. And by that point, war plans begin to be drawn up. Why
1: is there this pre-existing interest in invading Iraq, though? So there are probably lots of countries that we can come up with clever ways that we could invade them if we wanted to. What is the pre-9-11 existing interest in deposing Saddam that gives it so much momentum in this moment of, I guess, violent possibility?
0: Sure. I mean, it's for one thing, it's, it's worth noting that this momentum was to a certain degree, bipartisan. There had been this contemptuous view of Saddam Hussein building up uh, on Capitol Hill throughout the 1990s. Paul Wolfowitz was a big part of making that happen. So was Ahmad Chalabi, uh, the head of the Iraqi National Congress, a a group of Iraqi refugees who were being funded by the State Department. And, um, And so you had guys like Senator Bob Kerry, for example, very much in favor of the overthrow of Saddam. And there was something called the Iraq Liberation Act. Act passed in 1998, which was a resolution calling for that. But it was, a more, in the way of resolutions, it was aspirational. It was not a plan of attack per se. So there was already this view that Saddam was a very, very bad character, a destabilizing force in, in the Middle East, a, a dictator who behaved brutally towards his own people, and a kind of thumb in the eye to the U.S., but there was no real notion, Ezra, until nine eleven, that Saddam posed any harm to us beyond just the nuisance value of it. We did not know that he had weapons. We had no sense that if, even if he had them, he intended to use them on us. Those were arguments that had to be made later. But the first step in that was Wolfowitz floating the proposition that Saddam might have had something to do with nine eleven. This was more or less pretty quickly disproven by the CIA. But then came the ancillary notion that, okay, well, if he wasn't involved with that one, he could be involved with the next one because he has all these historic ties to al-Qaeda and other groups. That also was, for the most part, batted down though it was a hotly debated issue throughout the spring and summer of 2002. This is
1: where, to me, things get really weird. Is American and global geopolitical history just transformationally different in the absence of two deputy secretaries, Paul Wolfowitz and Doug Feith. Like if they if Rumsfeld just doesn't hire
0: those two guys, is everything different today? It's a really interesting counterfactual because uh, because it's worth considering that Donald Rumsfeld, um, as much of a hawk as he was regarded, was had no particular animus towards Saddam Hussein, was not one of the leading promoters of going after Saddam. Now, he did believe that after- shook his hand. Yeah, no, exactly. Right, right. As an, as an emissary um, sent by Ronald Reagan. And that was basically during the time that, um, that Iran was our number one threat in the Middle East, and Saddam was the enemy of the enemy. So we figured, well, let's try to get along with this guy. And it was a very, very fraught relationship, to say the least. But it was certainly, there, there was no point at which we thought, hey, this guy, you know, could really be a bad actor towards the U.S., towards U.S. interests, Arguably, you know, if you're including Israel, but, but, um, but in terms of being a threat to our homeland, never. And so it's really Wolfowitz who pushes that. And you mentioned the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Doug Feith, as well, who also was very much promoting the notion that Saddam uh, was a dangerous man and that Saddam could confederate with others who couldn't, who who disliked America uh, and plot the destruction of the U.S. Again, all of this unsupported by any real evidence, just wild leaps of the imagination by two people who you're right. I think, you know, um, we're very, very much the engines to make all of this happen. I, I
1: want to signpost this conversation for a minute. So I, I want to say reading your book is infuriating.
0: It's <laughs> the single most frequent word described to it.
1: It is such an angering experience. And I'm going to get to all the reasons why. But I want to spend at least some time here at the beginning trying to understand how these guys were the heroes of this in their own mind. Because, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but the way I read your book, it's a tragedy driven by idealism, not by cynicism.
0: Yeah, well, particularly as regards Wolfowitz, who truly was, and I believe still is, an idealist uh, whose whose beliefs were... Um, sort of bred during the civil rights era. I mean, he did, after all, go to the I Dream of, uh, uh, I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C. in 1963, who then became ambassador to the U.S., uh, or U.S. ambassador to Indonesia, and there began to see the possibilities of a Muslim majority population that was nonetheless religiously and in other ways tolerant, believed that Saddam Hussein was the one man who was standing in the way of that happening in the Middle East, or one of many men. But put first among equals, and and the very notion of overthrowing Saddam was originally not born out of uh, cynicism, nor even born out of fear. It was born out of idealism and the, and, and the belief that Iraq could be a model of democracy throughout the Middle East if only this tyrant were removed. Um, I'm not sure I see much in the way of idealism in fights. I think it's more opportunism, but Wolfowitz as the person who first put this on the agenda and really made it happen, but, but obviously the decider who did make it happen, George W Bush was himself in a sense an idealist who really believed that that what people yearn for more than anything else is freedom. And that if you, uh, freedom was basically the answer to almost any question and uh, to any problem, the solution was freedom, including sectarian tensions, for example. And and we're getting ahead of ourselves in the narrative there, but, but it's to establish that you're right. There was more than an idealistic streak that provided locomotion for this misguided policy. So w- what's strange about
1: The Iraq War, and maybe this is true for for other wars, but because the Iraq War is such a war of choice, what is, I think, distinctive about it is that it doesn't have a singular rationale behind it. In many ways, it ends up seeming like a war in search of a rationale. Different people want to do it for different reasons, and they're running around trying to find the arguments that will convince others. But but the two or three dominant ones, as I kind of count them up, are there is... There's sort of a war, like called the humanitarian war, and it's somewhat motivated by guilt for what we let Saddam do to the Kurds after '91, um, but also just a like a fury at what he has done over time. I mean, Saddam really is a murderous, like horrifying dictator. There is a war of I. Idealism or on democracy promotion. And this seems to be very potent with Bush, who wants to do something in the aftermath of 9/11, and we should talk more about this, that gives meaning to the way America was attacked, just like pounding sand, as they put it in Afghanistan isn't enough. Like there needs to be a reaction that is big enough to account for what um what happened to America. And then there's fear. And fear that, you know, Saddam would, for some reason that nobody ever quite explains, give WMDs to somebody to attack us, thereby imperiling himself and his own regime. And in particular, like the fear humanitarian and democracy promotion things, every time one falters, somebody picks up the other. But what do you think is powerful for Bush? Like, what is his motivation?
0: For Bush, the dominant rationale is fear. It, it begins at least that way, with the sudden recognition in the wake of the 9-11 attacks that we are not safe. We did not see September 11th coming. We do not know what's coming next, but we feel suddenly so vulnerable that we feel certain that there will be another wave. It's only a question of um, when, not if. Um there is a recognition that as bad as the attacks were, they could have even been worse. Uh, I'm sorry, can I interrupt you for one second? Because yes, which is one thing that's weird about that
1: is that It is hard to put the dots together. I'm sympathetic to this of what 9/11 literally was, but we saw an Al Qaeda attack coming, right? Like Bush was getting PDB presidential daily briefings that, like, we're, we're making this point, point. and people are not saying this about Saddam. We're saying that he's going to attack the American homeland. So like that's a that's a jump, right? Like the I get the fear that there will be another terrorist attack, but why think it will come from Saddam?
0: Yeah, I think that if September eleventh was, as many have described it, a failure of the imagination, the Iraq saga is about um, imaginations run amok. The very notion that Saddam Hussein—so Bush said this line over and over Ezra, Saddam Hussein would love nothing more than to hand over his deadly weapons to terrorists who wish to do us harm and then walk away without leaving so much as a thumbprint. Almost every single syllable of what I've just said in that sentence is unsupported by the facts. Saddam didn't have weapons. Um, He showed no Tendency to want to give those weapons to somebody else, much less to Al Qaeda, uh, who he had no meaningful relationship with at best. And finally, there was no indicator whatsoever that Saddam ever wanted to do us harm. It is true that on September the 12th, he was rather churlish, standing alone among the leaders of the world who were by and large expressing sympathy for what had happened to America. And there's Saddam saying, uh, you know, basically playing to his base, saying uh, the U.S. had it coming to him. There, you you know where uh the US is reaping the thorns thorns of its past policies. Okay, so that shows he's a spiteful jerk, but that does not mean that he, you know, is homicidal at least towards the US, much less that he's suicidal, which is what that would have been. So so yeah, there uh it it requires a lot of steps and you're right and and, and again in using the the i-word infuriating Bush was warned over and over that an attack could well be coming by al-Qaeda towards the U.S., that, they, that, um, that this was a group that did have evil designs on the U.S. And with the infamous August the 6th, 2001, Bin Laden de- determined to strike in the U.S. presidential daily brief that he received, it was spelled out for him. And uh, the person who wrote that brief later asked the briefer who gave it to Bush, so what was the reaction? And the reaction was Bush saying, "You've covered your ass," uh, and uh, the the person who wrote the brief was flabbergasted and said, "You mean no questions, no curiosity of any kind?" So you know, um the notion then that that uh, this should have been news to the Bush administration is a kind of outrage unto its own. But it does help explain how uh, members of the administration, from the president on down, realized that something. Deadly had happened on their watch, and were d- determined not to let it happen again. And then, in a perverse twist of fate, began to revert to the familiar, uh, to look at a familiar foe rather than the unfamiliar foe that had just attacked us. I don't know that it is possible to untangle what I'm trying to
1: untangle here, but but it seems to me to be central. So I want to I want to keep on it for a second, which is there is so much appropriate fear after nine eleven, but. Even at the moment there is all that fear, they are turning away from the network that we should be afraid of, right? You are tracking in your in your book the way Bush begins talking about this as an opportunity, that there's an opportunity here to transform the Middle East. There's an opportunity. And that's why I say that what, what seems to me to happen, at least on some level, is that they believe that just like attacking Afghanistan and bombing up Taliban sites and like trying to mop up al-Qaeda, it's not enough. Right. Like their Al-Qaeda is so small compared to America that for the attack on us to have meaning, for the narrative to be something that they can feel was still a narrative of American triumph, they need a bigger project. And yet, for all the craziness of that, that actually seems like it should be in opposition to the fear, right? They they choose to go after someone we shouldn't be afraid of. And yet there is, at the same time, this effort to create fear. So so I'd like to just hear you talk about the relationship between the, I guess, the humanitarian, the democracy, and the fear-based case for Iraq. Who are the players who believe which one, and how do those things support or end up in conflict with each other?
0: So properly, let's start with President Bush, and I do believe that— um while he is initially motivated uh, by fear and determination to thwart the next attack, uh, there's also a real Christian impulse that comes into play here, which is um how to derive meaning from a tragedy and um, a tragedy that happened to happen uh, happened to take place on his watch and if you believe as President George W. Bush did that everything is part of God's plan, then you tend to see, you tend to imagine that good will somehow come out of this, that there will be an opportunity for good. And this is what Bush began to talk about within days after 9-11, that, that uh, through our tears, we see opportunity, and not just opportunity for vengeance, but opportunity um, to come together as a nation, opportunity to perhaps, um, uh, you know, renew alliances or forge new alliances, and then for that matter, an opportunity to, in a sense, redraw the map of the Middle East, the, uh, an impulse that comes into play later. But I do think that that broader impulse very much is animate. In in Bush, Wolfwoods we've talked about Vice President Dick Cheney had been of the belief that Saddam was a bad actor, uh, and uh, and after nine eleven, believed that people like Saddam Hussein never really. Um, Believed America when America said that it was angry about something that that you could get away with almost anything when it came to the U.S. Whether it was uh, bombing embassies in Africa or bombing um, the USS Cole off the off the coast of Yemen and nothing really terrible would happen because of it. And so Cheney was of the belief that unless and until we began to project force to show people that we meant business, then they would continue to behave as if they did not. No idealism, in other words, uh, as regards Cheney, more Mm -hmm. motivated by the need to show power. Uh, With Rumsfeld, his view was that we, (laughs) it's always hard to tell with Rumsfeld because um, he seemed more interested in intellectual riddles than in an actual policy. But he did certainly believe that after September 11th, If we were going to have a war on terrorism, a global war that could not just be confined to a place like Afghanistan, which, as you alluded to previously, did not have suitable bombing targets, it would be tantamount to pounding sand. And if you really wanted to hit someone in a way that hurts, um, in a way that would show others that we meant business, a a viewpoint, in other words, kindred to his friend Dick Cheney's, um, then you should not limit your military impulses uh, just to Afghanistan. So those are the pro-war people on the one side. And then you've got people like Condoleezza Rice who were proceeding with caution and I think trying to sort of figure out how to read the room, the room being the Oval Office and what the president's desires were. And then someone like Secretary of State Colin Powell, uh, who believed that uh, going after Al-Qaeda was uh, the right and just move after September 11th and that going any beyond that was going to be outside of an international charter and would squander all of the goodwill that we had developed throughout the world. This gave rise to his notion that, you know, we needed to build a coalition before we went on any kind of, you know, a particular mission, which is antithetical to Rumsfeld's belief that no, 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 the mission determines the coalition. The coalition should not determine the mission. And that, of course, is, um, you know, writ small, uh, part of the ongoing conflict between Rumsfeld and Powell that describes a lot of the greater dysfunction leading up to war. So
1: I want to keep actually pushing outwards here. Because if there's one thing that I think that I wish your book had had a little bit more of, it is the expanding array of players who get on board of this, creating this permission structure that begins to lead us towards war. So there's this core inside the Bush administration we spend a lot of time with. And Powell is on the outer edge of that. Like he is the most skeptical of the Bush administration principles. Your read of him throughout the book is that he opposes war and he never tells George W. Bush that directly. That's correct. That seems like a tremendous, tremendous abdication of responsibility.
0: Well, I mean, I think that what he hoped, first of all, it was his misreading of the room. It was Powell's belief that this was such a cockamamie notion to even be talking about Iraq after 9-11. I mean, he was there at the table at Camp David in September 15 when Wolfowitz floated what seemed to him to be such a nutsy Proposition, and uh, and he believed it had gone away. Then he comes to realize by the Axis of Evil speech at the end of January in 2002 that actually Bush is really starting to move towards this. He had yes had had Tommy Franks draw up contingency war plans, but even then Powell didn't really take them seriously. By the spring and summer of 2002. It was only then becoming evident, uh, to Powell that, um, that he had erred in his judgment. But the other problem that Powell had, well was that he didn't have a good relationship with Bush. I mean, Bush, uh, needed Powell more than the other way around when, when Bush was running for president. He was constantly wrapping his arms around Powell, trying to get him to campaign for him. Uh, and, and Powell was far and away the most popular member of the new administration. Bush was always aware of that and, um, and very, very, sensitized to the possibility that Powell might be playing for a team other than Team George W. Bush. So there was a lot of tension that pervaded uh, and informed their relationship, making it really not so easy for Powell to just you know wander you know waltz into the Oval Office and say, "Hey, Mr. President, I think this is a bad idea it 's still nonetheless true that that um if that 's what Powell really believed that war was a stupid idea, which he did believe it would have been nice if he had said so i I do hesitate though to lay at Colin Powell's feet blame for the invasion, since he was, after all, the only major player to even say to George W. Bush, you know, if you break it, you own it, to to warn him of what could happen if he did invade. So he stands absolutely alone in the Bush administration in his willingness to, to stick his neck out that far.
1: But I want to push a little bit more on the Powell thing, because something your book does get at is the way Powell is arguably the key domino in what creates the wider capacity for Bush to get political support to go to war. So your book really isn't about the Democrats. And and they become, I mean, they are really important here. Like he needs votes from Democrats in the Senate. He needs votes from them in in the House. And Democrats are very unsure of what to do here for a long time. And it is Powell that turns them, right? Uh, Tom Daschle says after Powell's speech to the UN, look, you may not believe Dick Cheney, you may not believe George Bush, but I believe Colin Powell, don't you? And my understanding of basically the way the permission structure ends up getting built is that Bush decides to do this, seems to really decide to do it pretty early on. It is Bush's decision to do it that because of Powell's desire to remain in good standing in the administration, Powell begins filtering himself to Bush, right? He's skeptical, but he's on board. And Bush asks him, are you with me? And he says, I am. And Blair is a sort of similar situation, and Powell and Blair create this pressure on the Democrats because, like, you may not trust Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, but, I mean, Blair and Powell, don't you trust them? And then it's like, you know, your Hillary Clintons, your Dick Gephardts, et cetera, like, sign on board, like, the next row falls. And, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of anti-war Democrats who, who, who end up in play here, but a lot of the key members of the Democratic Party end up signing on. And I remember I was a freshman in college when this was going on, and I don't trust George W. Bush – but when I was trying to think about this, like with my like kind of like dumb college brain, what was convincing to me was that I mean, don't Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and these people who've like been at the top of um, foreign policy structures and intelligence structures for years, don't they know more? Like, should it, like isn't the fact that they're on this important? And it seems like the way you describe it, like that, Colin Powell is actually in many ways like the key link in that chain. Everybody keeps treating every person as if they are individual, but in fact, they're not. They're influenced by the person next most on the chart next to them. And so, in fact, like it all just flows down from Bush. It's not a bunch of like individual actors who you can look at for independent assessments.
0: Well, let's stipulate a couple of things. Um, One of them is that after all, months before Powell's speech, a number of key Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, including Joe Biden, had already given their vote of support for uh, President Bush to use um, military force. So they had already laid down on those tracks. But it 's certainly true that powell 's speech made them feel better about having done so uh, now, you can go sort of person by person as to why they did, and I do you know detect the whiff of politics behind the motivations of, of a number of the Democrats, particularly those who were thinking about running for president at some point or another for the vote that they cast. The fateful moment for Powell was, as you cite in January of two thousand and three when Bush basically says well does say. Colin, I think I need to do this. Are you with me? I want you with me. And that is the moment at which he could have said, Mr. President, I think it's a bad idea. And no, I'm not with you. And I present in the book a counterfactual that had he actually said, no, I'm not, that would have probably required that he resign. It would have meant that his senior staff would have resigned. It would have in turn meant that his UK counterpart, Foreign Minister Jack Straw, would have resigned. If he had resigned from the British cabinet, then that would have really knocked down Blair's administration. He would have he would have not received his own authorization vote. So we would not have had the UK It would have created an entirely different narrative, an entirely different kind of um, um, force against going to war. Powell, though, believed that Bush's mind was made up. and, And look, you don't get to be a four star general usually by being a dissident, you know, that's not the way Powell was built. But what to me was so poignant was that Powell said to me, I mean, if you are going to go to war, they call me the reluctant warrior, but I know how to do war. But of course, Ezra Bush didn't ask him how to do war. He asked him how to sell war. And that's what Powell ended up doing.
1: Tell me about Joe Biden here because he's relevant at the moment. <laughs> and he has a somewhat unusual, like he actually is in power here. He's a foreign relations committee. He's a key Democrat on, on foreign policy. He has a resolution that is not the one that gets adopted. Tell me a little bit about what he ends up doing here and what you think the kind of pressures and arguments that push him are.
0: Sure. Biden was, as you mentioned, then the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he had expressed concerns in the summer of 2002 that this rush to war um, might be premature, that might be missing a few steps. And so he wanted to kind of pump the brakes on that and held hearings in the Foreign Relations Committee that would d- discuss what the unintended consequences of war might be, what kinds of things needed to happen for there to be war. But at no point really did Biden actually question whether war was utterly misguided. At no point did he ever express the concern that Saddam might actually not have a weapons arsenal and posed a threat to the U.S. Quite the contrary. Uh, He, in fact, did talk about Saddam's weapons um, arsenal. He referred to Saddam on September the 10th, 2001 as a homicidal maniac. So he had accepted this conventional wisdom that had been germinating on Capitol Hill throughout the 1990s that Saddam was this true evildoer and that at some point would probably need to do something about him. Having said all of that, what he tried to do was... um, uh, was, along with Senator Dick Lugar, to provide a different kind of resolution that would basically require Bush to slow things down, require him to go back to the United Nations for additional authorization before the Senate, in turn, would give him authorization to go to war. And that ultimately failed. Biden, nonetheless, voted for it, believing, he said at the time, and has since said, that um, that the president would just be using this resolution as leverage to uh, force Saddam to let weapons inspectors back in the country. Bush told Biden that, and I think Biden was suckered by that because, in fact, Bush by this point already, with the inspectors not yet on the ground, really had no faith in them and did not expect that, um, that they would find anything, not because Bush thought that there was nothing to find. He certainly did. But he just believed that Saddam was such a master of deception that Hans Blix and, and his band of merry men and women uh, at Unmovic, the, the U.N. Um, weapons inspection crew, would simply just prove themselves not up to the task.
2: Let's take a quick break right here, and then we'll be right back. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? they have used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash box. So we should talk here because I think in some ways this is actually
1: the central story of the book is what is happening with this WMD intelligence. And so as you say, Biden and Bush and like the entire foreign policy establishment but also the the UK intelligence services the American intelligence services Hans Blix and the weapons inspectors everybody believes Saddam has wmds and they like there is this consensus not among literally everybody but among all of these players and that he has been deceptive in the past and he is hiding something and yet our intelligence is actually pretty bad and so There is this way in like the story you tell that our assumption that he has him and he is hiding things combined with intelligence being bad is like the central driving force in all this. So, can you talk a bit about like what we thought and what was wrong with what all of these services seem to think?
0: What happened was that after the first Gulf War, um, weapons inspectors came in in 1991, and Saddam made an effort to conceal from them the weapons arsenal that they had illegally Im- amassed. But once the inspectors did discover the nuclear facilities, then Saddam basically said to his military scientists, we've got to come clean. There are still uh, warships out there on the, uh, on the Gulf, and they could turn around and come destroy us all. So um, let's come clean. And in fact, by 1992, Iraq had destroyed all of its weapons. Now, we did not know that at the time. One reason we didn't know it was that Saddam was playing a, a rather sophisticated game in the neighborhood. Uh, he was more than happy to have the next door neighbor, Iran, uh, believe that Iraq still had defensive capability uh, with chemical weapons so that Iran wouldn't come marching in into Baghdad. So there was that. There was also the fact that, that uh, they behaved, the Iraqi regime, deceptively towards the weapons inspectors on the ground. We deduced from that 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 was because they had something to hide. After all, they hadn't come clean and until they were forced to before. But the real reason why they were being deceptive was they didn't like the inspectors and they didn't like the inspectors because they didn't like international interlopers coming into their federal government buildings and snooping around. They believed uh, that the inspectors were spies. And guess what? They weren't wrong. The CIA was embedded with the inspections team. So there was all of this mutual distrust. And what we gleaned from all that was they still have a weapon system and they have something to hide. And then ultimately when the last inspectors left at the end of 1998, the belief was, well, now that they're gone, um, that Saddam is surely reconstituting his weapons program. Now, we did not have a shred of physical evidence to support that. We only had a few sources scattered here and there, some of them rather dubious. One of them, a defector to Germany, a former Iraqi chemical engineer who was codenamed Curveball, who played into the biases of our CIA analysts who believed that Saddam had a biological weapons program, but they just could not find it. And what uh, Curveball said was, well, of course you can't find it. It's on wheels. They're mobile. They move from one place to another. And that was this aha moment that confirmed all of the biases and answered all the questions of so many analysts. But it was in so many ways representative of seeing two and two and, and calling it 22 Uh, because that was the number that made the most sense to us. And so our information was outdated. It was threadbare. It was built largely on the belief that Saddam, because he seemed to be suspicious, therefore had something to hide. In almost every instance, we saw into any scenario, the darkest possibility we would see trucks moving in and out of a chemical plant, and we would say, "Aha, those are decontamination trucks that are trying to clean the floors from their chemical weapons that are that are uh, are being produced when in fact, they were just water trucks and uh and this kind of thing happened over and over, but it was never challenged. And so by September of 2002, when the Democrats in the Senate demanded a national intelligence assessment of what Saddam's weapons capabilities the director of the CIA, George Tennant, ordered one up, gave them 19 days to produce it. And in that rush of 19 days, the best they could do was basically um, gather all of the old hypotheses, all of the old threadbare evidence and put it in more declarative language such that it now appeared to be a near certainty that Saddam had all these weapons when before we only had at best moderate confidence assessments that he did.
1: It will never stop being crazy to me how much we based on a source who is codenamed Curveball. Like when you call your source curveball, yeah, All yeah, right. I know. I feel like you are you are setting yourself up for this to not be true.
0: It, it is an irony bypass operation that clearly took place, and 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 you know even those people who um who wanted to believe what Curveball was saying were nonetheless deeply concerned by the fact that BND, the German intelligence agency, would not let the CIA or the DIA interview Curveball, have access to him of any kind. And so there were there were lots of reasons to be concerned about him, uh, even irrespective of the fact that um, the German intelligence agencies um, had cut ties with Curveball on September the 9th, I believe, of 2001. Uh, but they continued to use this intel as if it were righteous because it righteously confirmed their biases.
1: This is a part of the book that is so difficult to read because every time there's a hole in the intelligence and the intelligence is full of holes they paper it over with assumption and i told you before we started that in this funny way you've written a book about management and leadership when your information is bad that you've disguised as a book about the iraq war but it is to me this incredibly dangerous parable that when you don't know that much what you believe is going to Decide everything, because one of the things I was thinking about reading the book was that the spotty intelligence we had—it still could have pointed to WMDs. Like, it still could not—that that would have been a reason to invade. It still wouldn't have been, but it's possible that knowing how little we knew, maybe he had reconstituted his programs. It's just that that's the only thing they could imagine was true, and so every bit of evidence of deception became evidence that he was hiding more, not that he was actually hiding having less. And the whole thing just stems from it turns out like the intelligence never mattered at all. All that mattered was the assumptions people walked into the building with already. And you have time after time of Cheney or Rumsfeld or Fife or somebody arguing down some poor CIA analyst or George Tenet telling them that's not what the president wants to hear. And so I just was left wondering, like, You track this whole intelligence debate and narrative, but did it ever matter? Was this ever actually about the information? Was there ever an opportunity for any of this to be disproven? And would it have mattered if it was? Or were the governing beliefs going into this so strong that given what our intelligence capabilities really are in a place like Iraq, like this was all just for show. They were just finding their rationale and they would have found it one way or the other.
0: Yeah, I, I do land on the belief, Ezra, that ultimately the intelligence didn't matter. Now, I I, I do believe it would have mattered if um, they had semi-declaratively Had told the president, you know, we don't think he's got weapons. You know, I think that could have mattered. I think if they had done a fulsome search for truth and come to the conclusion that there's an entirely alternative explanation, that might've mattered. There were a couple of pieces of intelligence that did seem to turn the president's head. For example, this notion that Saddam had, um, uh, that the Iraqi regime had purchased uh, mapping software of U.S. cities that would be used for their unmanned aerial vehicle program. There turned out to be a totally innocuous explanation for that. But the very notion of that, that Saddam was purchasing maps of U.S. cities to use with these um, UAVs that could carry chemical weapons, for example, was a freaky thing. On the other hand, there were intelligence disputes being carried out before the president's eyes, and he seemed thoroughly unmoved by them. Among these is this notion that one of the 9-11 hijackers, Muhammad Atta, had before 9-11 Visited Prague and met up with a member of the Iraqi intelligence service. Now, if that were true, that is a "woe if true" moment, and and uh, and yet the CIA, after a while, came to the conclusion that no, was probably not true at all. While Dick Cheney is insistent that it is absolutely true, Bush is watching these these two, you know, essentially debate these two entities: the office of the vice president on the one hand the intelligence community on the other. And at no point does he say, hey, guys, hang on. This is actually kind of important. Let us come to a decision right now. What the hell is going on here? Instead, I think that what Bush had landed on was, you know what? Maybe that didn't happen, but it could. You know, I I think that Saddam is such an evildoer and bin Laden is such an evildoer that they will be bound up by their mutual hatred of the United States and they could get together. Well, to go to war on the notion of what could happen is, again, an infuriatingly ridiculous proposition. But I do think that that was... What gave Bush locomotion far more than a, you know, a a full study of the intelligence and a sober conclusion that the intel is guiding us to war.
1: I mean, and as you say, though, throughout this entire thing, just Cheney lies. There are things that the CIA tells him are at least no longer credible, and he just keeps repeating them aloud. At times, George Tenet does this. And so there are players in the administration. I mean, there's a set of things where if I'm trying to be maximally generous, there wasn't enough information to make a call confidently. And so they, like, they, they leaned in the direction like that they thought was true. But then there are a bunch of things where there were, and particularly Cheney just keeps going out and saying it anyway. I mean, Cheney really seems to me to just lie the country into war.
0: Is that unfair? By August of 2002, it is certainly not unfair. It is demonstrably true because that's that's when Cheney goes before the Veterans of Foreign Wars group in Nashville and says, simply stated, there can be no doubt that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Well, shit. There was plenty of doubt. I mean, that's that's nuts. And and uh, there was no one in the intelligence community who believed that there can be no doubt that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction and that Saddam was avidly pursuing nuclear weapons. That was his interpretation of it. But he stated it as if it were a given. And so, yeah, yeah, no, that that absolutely qualifies as a lie. I should mention one other thing that I've again sorry to use the word infuriating one more time, but um, you know, there was a circulation at work, too, in the intelligence community. And that was well, we're going to go to war anyway. So we probably should err on the side. We shouldn't give Saddam the benefit of the doubt. We should probably err on the side of caution by leaning into the notion that um, that Saddam, for example, has chemical weapons. Because after all, if we don't, then what if our you know young men and women go into combat not wearing chemical gear, not wearing mop gear, uh, because the assessment was, well, we're not sure if he has chemical weapons. So no, let's give the benefit of the doubt to that. Well, then, of course, that becomes something that that the president can point to saying that the national intelligence estimate, our own people in the intelligence community, have made clear that they have very high confidence that Saddam, Saddam has chemical weapons when they're only really making that assessment because they believe that war is inevitable. It is, you know, a self-licking ice cream cone.
1: <laughs> but I, I want to hold on to that because I think it's actually a really important part of the story and, and, and part of its lessons. George W. Bush and also, to a large extent, Dick Cheney together— by making it very clear what they think and what they want, they affect everything they get and that happens around them. George W. Bush does not get, um, say, Colin Powell's honest view on things because Colin Powell already knows where he thinks George W. Bush is going to end up. Same thing happens with Condoleezza Rice. And on intelligence, you keep referring to Bush in the book as the first customer that George Tenet wants the CIA to be more influential in the Bush administration than it was in the Clinton administration. And so he gives Bush more and more of what he wants. He gives him more operatic, dramatic briefings. He gives him more intense intelligence. Every kind of crazy threat you can possibly put in a briefing, whether or not it's all that credible, he gives it to Bush. And so Bush is getting fed everything that backs up his biases and very little that doesn't. The people who want to rise up around him are giving him what he wants to hear. And one of the deep warnings of this book is how much a president can bullshit themselves by not recognizing clearly enough, again, trying to be generous here, what effect that their lean is going to have
0: on everybody else. They warp reality. So on Tenet, I mean, there are two two factors at play here. And I don't think either of them, and I don't think I'm being overly gen- generous to George Tenet in saying this, but, but neither of these factors has anything to do with personal ambition. I think he believed that, uh, had a sincere concern that with the intelligence that was being pulled out of thin air by Akham and Chalabi and, and others, that if the CIA were shut out of the president's decision-making process, then the only information that the president would see was... Was this hackneyed bullshit that um, less than honest actors were coming up with? So he believed, rightly or wrongly, that by remaining relevant, by being in the room, he would be able to affect the outcome. But that required, as you say, sort of feeding the beast. You know, feeding the the um, the interests of the first customer. The second thing also was that. Tenet was yet another one of these who believed that war was inevitable. And so why not push all of this the president's way? And, and by the summer of 2002, he's telling people around him, Tenet is, look, I think we're going to be going to war possibly as early as December, so we need to start getting ready for this. Now, you mentioned briefly Condoleezza Rice, and I feel like she plays a major role as the person whose fiduciary obligation, you could argue, was to bring in front of the president in the Oval Office, a dissenting point of view. Just one person who would say, Mr. President, I think it's a bad idea. Now, by the way, for whatever else his flaws were, President Obama would have thought to do that anyway. I mean, you could of course argue that Obama was our, you know overly cautious, insisted on as many, you know, practically a cacophony of voices, but in any event. I, I could see Obama, I could see George Herbert Walker Bush, but George W. Bush himself did not say, you know, guys, um, should we hear the other side? Bush never did that. And and Condi Rice never felt that it was apparently her obligation to bring someone in. The one who comes the closest is Colin Powell. And other than Colin Powell, the only Americans that I know of who actually had a discussion with the president about, about the inadvisability of going to war were his 20-year-old twin daughters, Apart from that, you know, he heard from King Abdullah of Jordan. But Bush's view was, yeah, yeah, OK, I get it. You don't want war. It's, you know, your neighborhood. It'll be rough. But will you support us nonetheless? But Condoleezza Rice's dereliction of um, of duty to um, to bring the president, the news he perhaps did not want to hear but needed to hear, to me, is really one of the significant events that did not take place in the run-up to war. It fills me with
1: so much rage the way so many of these people have been rehabilitated, the way George Tenet got a presidential medal freedom despite completely fucking botching this. The way Condoleezza Rice people were talking about wouldn't it be great if John McCain put her on the ticket in 2008. Colin Powell was at the Democratic National Convention. George W. Bush, you know, wasn't he a good guy right after 9 11? One of the things that really comes through to me in your book, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself in, in widening this out to Trump, although I am going to um, later in our conversation, but is how dangerous true believers can be, right? So many of the Trump administration's flaws and failures and catastrophes are driven by cynicism and corruption. But in the Bush administration, a lot of it is driven by idealism and true belief and like an almost messianic complex. And before coronavirus, they had done more damage, not Trump. Before coronavirus, there was a much, much, much larger death toll, maybe still is, on the Bush administration's ledger. And the idea that like they did it with all good intentions, some of them, it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. And yet it's amazing what American politics will put behind it, right? Like so many of these guys. And by the way, so many of the the like the neoconservative complex, like now they're all the never Trumpers and they get um, feted by the left. There has never been an accounting for this. Not a real one.
0: No, no, no. one. Judy Miller lost her job, I guess you could say. But apart from that, um, you're hard pressed to find anyone. And, um the military-industrial complex and the intelligence community and the political world who was truly penalized by, I, I suppose you could say that, that it cost Hillary Clinton the nomination to uh, to Barack Obama in 2008, but uh, still she stuck around, you know, and, and had a pretty successful political career beyond that. You know, I, I think that when we talk about belief, Ezra, we should also recognize that a corollary to belief so often is, or the other side of the coin, is ignorance. You know, and and so it's it's easy to forget that the Bush administration came in with a foreign policy team that was as experienced on its face as any that had been amassed in quite some time. And yet in their own way, they were quite ignorant. They were Republicans who had been out of office for a long time. Donald Rumsfeld, it was argued over and over, was the most experienced secretary of defense in um in American history, because after all, he had been deaf once before, not to mention chief of staff. He had also been out of government for something like, you know, 25 years and was still possessed of a Cold War mentality, not to mention a basic distrust of bureaucracy, but knew nothing about Al Qaeda and didn't take briefings on the subject. And, and, and then you go with all of the Cold Warriors from, uh, from the first Bush administration, among them Dick Cheney and, and um, Colin Powell, I would add to that, uh, and Wolfowitz, and they're still in the way that most people do these things, you know, kind of fighting the last wars rather than looking into the new ones. They're, so the belief in a lot of ways is, uh, is also what the, the elixir that fills in a vessel that is otherwise empty with ignorance. And, and so much of what happens in the Iraq parable is belief where simply an honest search for truth would have been preferable.
1: I want to talk about another continuity I see between the Republican Party of today under Trump and of Bush. Um, we've been talking here about the decision to go to war. Once they go to war, they also do it catastrophically. Um, they have no real planning for the aftermath. They uh, push out Eric Shinseki, General Eric Shinseki, after he gives a more honest account of how many troops are going to need. And A lot of it is driven by this contempt the Bush administration still has for government. Rumsfeld treats the Defense Department with contempt. They all treat bureaucrats beneath them with contempt. The belief is that the UN and the UN inspectors have missed everything. The UN is treated with contempt. Then the Iraqi Civil Service is treated with contempt as an enemy. You then have a couple years later the financial crisis after they treat all the financial regulators and the idea that you would actually need to regulate that industry with contempt. Now you have the Trump administration, which has botched coronavirus terribly because it treats government with contempt. One thing that just feels to me like a profound through line in all of this is that when you put people in charge of running a government who they themselves do not like and do not respect government, whether they do not like and do not respect government competently, as was the case of the Bush administration, where they're pretty good at attacking the government or incompetently, as in the case of the Trump administration, you get catastrophic outcomes. Because you actually need government run by people who think government does a good job. Does that feel fair or unfair to you?
0: No, it feels it feels very apt. Uh, I, I think that that um uh it was one thing that is that constitutes a through line in the political career of George W. Bush, going back to when he first reigned for Congress in the 1970s, that he would always talk about freedom and always talk about individual responsibility. And these were sort of core themes of his, the belief that not only everyone deserved to be free, but that once they did so, it's best that things be left up to the individual and they would have to be responsible for their actions. That plays into Iraq. So Bush's, Bush's notion is— um, the Iraqis will joyously coalesce around the democracy. They will they will cast aside any sort of sectarian misgivings, and and the opportunity to be free will be um, the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, corresponding to that is a belief held by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld that we don't do windows. That that or to, or to mix the metaphor, uh, that uh, we've got to take our hands off the bicycle seat. Let the Iraqis learn how to ride for themselves. And so the notion of governance, which is messy. Uh, and which Colin Powell and the State Department warned that you know would be maybe catastrophically messy would, would require some kind of government that that um, and arguably a military government that would sit in for years at a time was anathema to this republican administration um, that thought that this is you know this is exactly the way bureaucrats think and uh, they have no idea these these pinheads at the State Department that uh, the Iraqis are more than willing to to figure this out on their own that there' are these able bodied, uh, you know, geniuses like Ahmed Chalabi. And, and so, no, I think it's, I, I think you can establish a, you know, um, a real, um, connective tissue between that Republican administration and the current one. There, there are some very, very crucial dis, uh, distinctions, I believe. I mean, there, there was a largely an absence of meanness in, in the Bush administration that you see with the Trump administration. And that does come into play because, um, Bush, um, went way out of his way, uh, to to tell the Muslim community, you are not our enemies. You, yours is a great religion. Uh, that's certainly nothing you would hear from this administration. But in terms of how they see governance, for all of their supposed experience and expertise, uh, they tended to um, they tended to back away. They tended to believe that um, the that governance was messy and therefore undesirable, rather than messes, messy and therefore desirable.
1: I'm playing around this idea, so I want to I want to push on it a little bit more because I'm glad you don't think it's crazy, but you talk a lot. We've not talked that much about Donald Rumsfeld in here, but one of the ways Rumsfeld really plays into the narrative um, is his whole thing is that he's going to reform the military. He's going to show that you don't need these heavy footprints, these huge troop deployments. You can do a lighter, faster, quicker. He's incredibly cutting to anybody who disagrees with him. Their approach to a lot of the CIA analysts is simply that you're being too careful. You refuse to see what's right in front of your face. You won't take the obvious step forward, right? You won't, you frame this in terms of imagination, right? You won't like use your actual imagination. Then they like this little team in the CIA called Red Cell that's basically doing like speculative fiction. And you have this happen a bunch of different times. And what's just striking to me about it is it's two different modes of Republican governance coming from the same place. I would say the Trump administration's attitude towards the government is that they hate it and they're here to rob it, right? They've like come in and either they like don't want to deal with the questions of governance at all or they're basically trying to extract things out of it for themselves and their friends. And in the Bush administration, even with the people who are taking their jobs in governance more seriously— they believed they were there to fix it in a way, right? To like, they, they, they had contempt for it. It was hidebound. It was bureaucratic. It was slow. It had missed it. The UN was useless. It had become a joke. And in all these cases, they treat these agencies and institutions with so much contempt that they cannot hear what they're being told. When the UN inspectors increasingly are saying, we are not finding anything, they just think that is evidence of how inefficient and incompetent they are. When the Defense Depart- when the, the military generals say, like we will need a lot more to do this, they just think that is evidence of how inefficient government is. And so we have two successive Republican administrations. I mean, at the end of the Bush administration, he's got a 25% approval rating when the 08 election happens. He's got a debacle of a war, a financial crisis. Now we're in the Trump administration towards the end of the first term. And One hundred and seventy thousand people are dead from coronavirus, and unemployment is ten point three percent. And like, there's a reason this keeps happening. If you put, like, if you put people who don't want to run governments in charge of governments, then when governments need to be run well, they're not going to be run well. And everybody wants to create this real distinction between Bush and Trump, but like, this is the this is the continuity to me that like, you can express your dislike of government. In ways that are active or passive, you can express it in ways that are ideological or transactional. But if you are, if you build an administration on top of it, in general, it's just not going to go well.
0: Well, let's not forget that Bush came into office with those around him bragging that this was the first Harvard Business School presidency that we would see, uh, that that we would witness, and experience. And and so the the belief was that somehow this would amount to a kind of. Um, more efficient government, a quasi privatization of government, but built on the superior business model and there was a lot in the way of um costumery around all of this. the whole were no more of you know not wearing coats and ties in the Oval Office and eating pizzas on the, you know, on the floor in the manner of the Clinton administration. No more meetings going on into all hours of the night so that the poor Secret Service people can't go home to their families. Uh, th- there was a kind of crispness, a hyper-efficiency that seemed to make people believe this is the way a government is supposed to run, you know, with chop-chop efficiency. But as it turned out, that really wasn't the case at all. And I do think that, that. um there are a few different things at work, and you've mentioned one of them, you know, relating to Rumsfeld and and his belief that he was smarter than any bureaucracy. If if this is, if something had been there a long time without him having built it, then there must be something grievously wrong with it. You know, one of President Bush's great flaws that I think will be one of the defining aspects, tragically so, of his presidency was his intellectual incuriosity. And and it wasn't so much that he despised government, it's just that he didn't really want to get his hands dirty with it. He he, convinced himself and others around him that that was somewhat beneath him, that um, that those details would be left to others. And it's not as if Bush went around the way the Trump administration has been doing, you know, basically um, uh, shaking down each and every government agency, not because they have a more efficient model in mind, but because they're deep state and they're in the way of Trump and his cronies getting what they want. Bush wasn't so much doing that, but he also really was not eager to have his hands on the levers of power. He believed, that these short clipped meetings and delegating everything to everybody else and then him being out of the Oval Office by 4 p.m so that he could go exercise and then hang out you know in the residence with his wife and daughters was in fact the appropriate way to govern but there simply were times especially in the run-up to war especially after 911 also during hurricane Katrina during the financial crisis when only when the whiff of defeat was in his nostrils did he come to realize the stakes and come to be a more energetic, more activist governor or president. Uh, Unless and until those moments presented themselves, he was a very curiously detached executive.
1: And is this sort of an answer to one of what always seems like the ideological mysteries of the Republican Party, where you have this party that thinks government can't do anything right and can't run a DMV, but of course it can pretty easily invade Iraq and rebuild a liberal democratic society in the aftermath, which is simply that, If you think the government is actually standing in the way of people living their lives and doing things well, then you actually don't think that's a hard problem. That the idea is simply that um, you don't need to do that much because people want freedom and they want to build civil society. And so like there was never a contradiction in, say, George W. Bush's mind. The actual idea was that uh, you just don't have government screwing everything up. And so it's not as hard as running a DMV.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's, that was basically Bush's view. And I think he really, he, I never heard Bush in all the years that I knew him repeat the Ronald Reagan line of you know the, the most dreaded words one can hear I'm from the government and I'm here to help but he did basically believe that that which governs least governs best and um it's it's curious though I mean I it, you know in the 1990s when he was governor of Texas he would tell me that he viewed himself as an activist governor now of course it was a constitutionally weak office and so maybe what he was really just trying to say is hey I'm relevant you know I'm more relevant than the state constitution will allow me to be but the reality was that he brought to the White House the same kind of view he had in Texas, which is like, I'm going to concentrate on three or four things, and that's it. And, you know, th- there's there's a lot more going on in the government, a lot more going on in people's lives than three or four things can cover. And, um, you know, we found that out the hard way.
1: One of the things the book tracks, and we've touched on a little bit here, is how much influence it had on how the entire rest of the government operated for Bush to have such strong predilections towards, one, believing Saddam Hussein was a supervillain level threat, and two, that once there was liberation, Iraqis would um, be ecstatic about freedom and be ecstatic about democracy and take it into their own hands. And I want to draw now this question to coronavirus. You have a president now amidst a pandemic who his signals have consistently been, he does not want to deal with this problem and does not want this problem escalated in terms of its severity. So knowing that the president has those views on the virus itself what is that likely to do to the people around him to the agencies that are responsible for for responding to this like what is the what is like the like the management lesson of Iraq for coronavirus
0: well, I mean, the, the I, a very fundamental, a very basic lesson to the Iraq saga is one that this administration cannot possibly learn because it is really anathema to the ethos of this administration. And that is the truth matters, a search for the truth matters. President Trump has made absolutely clear that if the truth is politically inconvenient from him, uh, for him, it's not just that he doesn't want to hear it, it's he will punish you for talking about it. And I've written about this recently in the New York Times magazine, that directors of national intelligence have been fired because they either stated or permitted to let stand assessments that, for example, Russia interfered in the 2016 election um, with the intention of swinging the election over to Trump and would intend to do so in 2020 as well. You know, I, I do think that that um, Bush did not avidly pursue the truth, but he did not try to sell a truth that had. He, he did not try to punish people who brought him the truth. Nobody's heads rolled because they told told the president ABC. I mean, would as we've established earlier, would it maybe some heads had rolled? Um, but but the president, uh, President Bush, never. Punished people for inconveniencing him the way this president um, has repeatedly and manifestly, and so I think that that um, that that there are important lessons institutionally to learn about um, about Iraq. And and by the way, to be fair to some of those entities like the intelligence community and the U.S. military, I think they actually have done what they could to go through a lessons learned and go through self inspection as a result of the the terrible mistakes that were made in the run up to war. But I think that that you know, citywide, Washington-wide, that has failed to be the case. Even if it, even if those lessons had been ingested, this president would not be paying attention to them.
1: Do you think that some of the, I guess, ideological lessons of the Iraq War have penetrated? I mean, we were talking about Joe Biden earlier, and in that moment of post-9/11 uh, war planning. The way I would describe where a lot of those mainstream Democrats were is one, they felt the victory of Yugoslavia um, and Biden had been key in getting Clinton to intervene there um, and that they had stopped a humanitarian disaster. They felt the failure of Rwanda very deeply. And post-Iraq, and I think you saw this very much in in, uh, Barack Obama's presidency, there was a real sense of... There are real limits on Americans on America's power. Like the things people remembered just before had stopped being that the worst thing we did was to not intervene, and had become that the worst thing we did was to intervene. And so, you know, ultimately, like Obama doesn't go into Syria despite um, Assad crossing the red line, and so on. Where would you say like the Washington foreign policy blob is on these questions compared to when Bush was in power? Do you think the assumptions about what America can and can't do in the world have changed?
0: I think that the subject of what should the Iraq saga tell us about our role in the world and in informing U.S. foreign policy has been studiously avoided <laughs> by by both parties, really, you know, um, that there has not been, I mean, it, look, it, it just, let's be real, it never does happen that like, you know, some fulsome conversation happens about, you know, American foreign policy. But it's, but, you know, from Vietnam, the lesson among Democrats was, okay, we're done with war. Then the first Gulf War happens. And then perhaps even more poignantly, as you referenced, uh, Bosnia and Kosovo, and the Democrats think... Hmm. Actually, we can make a positive difference in the world, and for that matter, maybe we should have made a positive difference in the world when it came to the humanitarian crisis in, in Rwanda. Then Iraq happens, and now you know we have recoiled again. Of the, the Obama administration, did now you know there is a there is an immense bandwidth of possibilities in U.S. foreign policy between the freedom agenda espoused uh, in Bush's inaugural address of two thousand five, which was basically hell yes to Middle East adventurism and beyond. Uh, between that and the total isolationism of the Trump presidency, where the posture is America first and to hell with our NATO allies and everything else. But that has not been explored. You know, I I do think, Lincoln, that one opportunity for that to be explored was when um, the NATO-led bombing of Libya occurred. That was certainly an opportunity to say, well, what happens the day after? What, What role should America play in that day after. And it's just remarkable how deafening the silence was on that particular topic. It just felt to me like a moment where we should consult all that took place in Iraq, all we learned or should have learned from it and applied it to, um uh, you know, to to that experience. And uh, and yet really all that's just come out of that is the Democrats not wanting to talk about it anymore. And the Republicans saying Benghazi a million times, um, uh, but without really any coherency ideologically to that argument.
1: I mean, this is a place where I feel like I genuinely don't quite know what Joe Biden will do. And and I say that I've been on calls with him and, and, and I've heard him talk. And he thinks about foreign policy first. I think it's something people don't quite grok about him. But 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 as we've talked about before, he was foreign relations chair. He talks about legislation he's passed, but you know if you read his books, for instance, he's more focused on say uh, the work he did pushing uh, Clinton to go into Bosnia and Kosovo. And so he naturally thinks about what he can do to restore America's role in the world. He is somebody who believes intuitively in like America is the indispensable nation. And I also think he's at least somewhat chastened by the failures of Iraq and his own failure around Iraq and and, and mistakes he made. And so I just don't think I know what Joe Biden thinks the scope of plausible involvement for America is in foreign crises. You know, in a situation where China's attacking America, obviously you defend your your homeland. But, you know, if China invaded Taiwan, right, like there are all these, you know, there's still a lot of um, unrest in the Middle East. It seems much less clear to me what the center of even the Democratic foreign policy establishment thinks the limits of American power are than it used to be. Because I think it used to be that they thought there basically were none, but there were limits to American domestic political support. But now I think there's still, there's both a a feeling that they didn't do enough in the Obama years, but a sense that um Iraq really does show that there's weakness here. And I'm curious if you have a different view on that.
0: No, my view is similar to yours. Of course, that view is basically we have no freaking idea. And that view of mine is largely informed by the recognition that I agree with you that Biden feels chastened by what took place. I'm not totally convinced that he's done anything in the way of a, um, well, here are the things that I would do differently, other than I wouldn't trust George W. Bush. I don't know that he sees our place in the world differently, that he sees how we should be viewing a dictator like Saddam Hussein. I just don't know. And I, I think that that a President Biden, who with no political ambitions anymore, he's now president, would probably ask questions um, more acutely uh, than he did back then. I think he would assume things less. But how... In the end, any of that would guide his action if, uh, if one of our allies were, you know, um, uh, were invaded in the Middle East. If, if, uh, if the Iranians, you know, completely took over Iraq, um, and then from there were posing a threat to Saudi Arabia or something. I mean, I, it's, it's really, really hard to know. And, and it's hard to know for a reason. I mean, these are, these are difficult questions, but it's also just the case that America as a whole has dodged any and all opportunities to talk about America's role in the world. Beto O'Rourke actually had mentioned this to me years ago uh, before he was even thinking about running for president, that he'd been reading a lot of foreign policy books, and and, and he believed that this was territory that the Democrats ought to own. And certainly the, um, the gaping void of ideas that the Republican Party has on this subject would afford that opportunity to the Democrats. But it's still not clear to me if there's anything close to a consensus among Democrats as to um, just how we should be leaning into um, uh, to moments of crisis overseas.
1: I think that's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always use to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that you would recommend to the audience?
0: Only recently uh, after coming out from under uh, working on this book, which consumed a few years of my life, uh, have I been able to go back and read um either books that have been recently published or published a couple of years ago. There's a lovely novel, um, The Marge Room by Rachel Kushner, uh, who wrote this great book, The Flamethrowers, um, about a woman in a woman's prison uh, on the West Coast that was published two years ago. She's just a master of a novelist, and I, and I cannot recommend that enough. Uh, more recently published um, are a couple of books, uh, The False Cause by um, by Adam Dombey, which is a really, really wonderful book about white supremacy in the Confederate memory and basically in a very compact uh, and brisk way. Utterly gives the lie to the notion uh, that some, like myself in the South, grew up with that—that that, uh, um, that honoring Civil War veterans is really just about honoring heritage, but is really about the promotion of white supremacy. And then finally, um, there's a book uh, by a guy named Alex Halberstadt called "Young Heroes of the Soviet Union" that is such an off the wall memoir. I've, I've just really found it so. Uh, captivating about um, him and his, uh, so, uh, his Russian grandfather who happened to be um, one of Stalin's bodyguards and Stalin's drivers and his relationship with him and it's, and uh, it's, it, it is a window onto uh, the world of the dwindling Soviet Empire in Russia today uh, that I just found so appealing on so many fronts so I recommend that as well
1: Robert Traper, thank you very much.
0: my pleasure. Thank
1: you to Robert Draper for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.